0: Well, good morning again. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I was reminded this morning of a book called The Autobiography of George Mueller. George Mueller was a Persian pastor in the 1800s who moved to Bristol, England, and he was preaching about the same time Spurgeon was preaching. And he gets to the church, and he finds out that the church is renting out the pews of the church. And so, if you had a little bit more money, you could sit closer to the front. And if you had a little less money, you, sent, you went further to the back. And George Mueller was appalled at this. And he told the deacons and said, Look, we're not doing this anymore. And they said, Pastor, that's wonderful. How are we going to pay your salary? And George Mueller said, Okay, here's what you're going to do put a little lockbox at the back of the church. And if anyone wants to contribute to my need, they can just put it in there. And I'll pray for the rest. And so he went home and he started praying. And his autobiography records what happened as he was going through life and dealing with, you know, I need to buy food today. And he'd put in there, we ran out of food this evening, have nothing for breakfast in the morning. Sought the Lord in prayer. And the next entry was the next morning. Oh, Miss Smith showed up with her famous breakfast for me. That's how he lived his entire life. He just sought the Lord in prayer. At the same time Spurgeon was building orphanages, George Mueller did the same thing, and he took the same philosophy of never telling anybody what he needs except to go to prayer. He took that same philosophy, and he applied it to his ministry, and he started caring for orphans, and he never told anybody what the orphanage needed. He just prayed about it, and his biography records his daily activity of what his needs are, sought the Lord in prayer, and then how God answered the prayer. That was a man who was living by faith. That was a man who really, truly believed in the power of prayer. And that was demonstrated in his life, a life of prayer. Because he believed, he truly believed that prayer works. That wasn't just intellectual assent on his part. It was a deep core conviction to him, prayer was the most effective use of his time. The most effective way that he could get what he needed he understood one simple truth. God answers prayer. And when you believe that, it's going to change your prayer life. And that's the point Jesus is going to make here in our passage this morning. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. You're going to see two truths about God answering prayer. And my prayer this morning, as we go into this new year, is that the Lord would use this passage to convince you that you would have a deep conviction that prayer works, that God answers prayer, and that you will see that as the greatest blessing, and that will turn around and make you a man or a woman of prayer in 2024. Let's look at the first truth first truth about God answering prayer. God promises to answer your prayers. God promises to answer your prayers. Look at verse 7, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus gives us three illustrations here of prayer. And all of them describe a different little nuance about prayer. Notice in verse 7. Ask, seek, and knock. Each one is a single verb, and each one is a command. It is what you are to do. You are to ask, to seek, and to knock. And to each of these three commands, Jesus attaches a promise. What is the promise that he attaches? Notice verse 7 again. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened up. You can sum up all three of those with one statement God answers prayer. Let's look at this first one, verse 7. He begins with ask. Have you ever met someone who just never would ask you for help? I think guys do this a lot. I don't need to read the instruction manual, I don't need to ask for directions. Asking assumes that you are dependent upon someone else. It assumes that you cannot do something for yourself. And when a Christian is prayerless or does not pray, it is evidence that they are guilty of self-sufficiency, that they view themselves as being independent, that they don't need God in their situation. Prayer acknowledges that I can't do this without God, that I can't make it through this without God. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you driven 70 miles an hour down the highway, never stopped to ask God, can you make sure I do this safely? When I get in the car and I drive 70 miles an hour down the road, and I don't stop to ask the Lord for his guidance and his help, what I'm saying is, God, I don't need you to do what I'm doing. I can do this on my own. But if we understand how dependent we are, if you understand how precarious and fragile your life truly is, you would be spending every moment in prayer. We would be storming the gates of heaven, begging and pleading with God. When Jesus says we are to ask, he's not talking about a half-hearted, flimsy little request that you kind of throw up there like it's spaghetti on a wall and hope it sticks. One lexicon defining this word to ask as this way, it means to ask with urgency, even to the point of demanding. In biblical Greek and Hebrew, they would use imperatives. They would use commands in prayer. And it wasn't commanding God or demanding that God does something. It was understood that that command was A strong, fervent plea. It was to show desperation. It describes desperate prayer, motivated by need. I need God to help me with this, or I cannot be successful. And when you go and you ask, notice what he promises. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. It refers back to what you requested, and when you ask, what you requested will be given to you. Do you hear any doubt in that statement? Did Jesus say, ask, and it might be given to you? No, he said, go to your Father and ask. Humbly, dependently request what you need, and when you do, it will be given to you. Well, I don't believe that. Well, then you have a problem with what the Bible says and what Jesus says. Jesus made the same promise in John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made complete. That last part gets me. We understand asking because we need something. And Jesus says, ask so that you can receive so that for the purpose that your joy may be complete. That you can have joy. Isn't that a magnificent promise? Ask anything according to the will of God and he will do it. And now Jesus is going to describe another aspect of prayer, another nuance of prayer. Verse 7 again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. You know, oftentimes Christians can get a little lazy. We have a need or something that we want. And we do the right thing. We go to God and we ask. And we say a prayer and we say, okay, I did it. Now I'm going to go sit on the couch and wait. I need a new job. So I go and I pray for it, and then I go home and I wait for that employer to call me because somehow, magically, the employer is going to know I need a job and he's going to want to hire me. Prayer is not a license for laziness. If I need a job, I should pray and ask God to provide. But I must realize that in many cases, God is going to answer that prayer through me and through my diligent effort. So Jesus here describes prayer not simply as asking, but as seeking. Seeking is taking action. It's getting up and moving. This word is used to describe going out and finding somebody. Let me give you an example of how this works, where you pray and you have to get up and work. Matthew 6, verse 11. This is in the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. That's what you are to pray for. You are to pray for your daily meal That God will provide you something to eat every day. Does this mean that you can say the prayer once, go home, sit down, and just wait for H-E-B to deliver a car full of groceries for you? No. If you want food, you need to get up and go get it. You need to go work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Should you pray for God to provide for you? Absolutely. Should you make sure that you have and you keep a job? certainly. Or another example, someone struggling with a specific sin issue, and they're really hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They really want to be free of the sin, and they fall into the sin again, and they're coming and talking to you, and you ask them, well, what have you done about the sin? Help me never do it again. That is usually their first answer, and oftentimes it is their only answer, because all they did was pray about it. They asked God to help them never do it again. But let me ask you a question. Where does the Bible say that is the solution to your sin? That is not what God commands you to do after sin. Yes, you should be praying for help in dealing with sin, but the Bible commands you to confess and to repent, and not merely pray about it. Yes, there are some sins that God removes the moment you are saved, but there are other sins that the means that God is going to use to deliver you from them is your diligent effort and the Holy Spirit working in and through you as you strive for holiness. You can see this in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is God's will that you be sanctified, that you be growing in holiness. And what does he mean there? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is God's will that you abstain. That you put off the old man and put on the new. And you do that prayerfully. You do that asking God for help. And it is God who will work through you to answer your prayer. Philippians 2.12, Paul says, You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Part of sanctification is praying to God and asking for help. But that is not the only part that is accompanied by you getting up and doing the work the Lord has called you to do. Prayer is no excuse for laziness. And if you seek, if you follow the command, verse 7 again, Matthew 7, verse 7, Seek and you will find. Find here, the the Greek word means exactly what you think it means. But it does have an interesting nuance. Find here refers to stumbling upon something you stumble upon it. When God answers your prayer, he provides the answer in such a way that it seems like you just stumble upon the answer. It doesn't come like a train. You know, you can hear the train almost trip over the provision. One morning you wake up, you've just been praying and diligently applying scripture to your life. And one morning you wake up and you look back and you said, man, that sin that I was struggling with just isn't here anymore. I just don't have a problem anymore. The spouse that you've been searching for just shows up. The new job comes from the application that you didn't think was going to go anywhere. God just provides an answer. If you seek, if you pray, and faithfully work to fulfill your responsibilities, God will answer your prayer. So Jesus describes prayer as asking, seeking. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7, knock and it will be opened to you. This picture is someone knocking on a door. Whenever I go to my house, I don't knock on the door. It's a door I can open. You knock on doors that you can't open, that you need someone else to open for you. And you knock, if you want to go inside, you knock until they answer. Prayer here is described as knocking on, a, on the door of heaven until God answers. I can give you an illustration of that. Remember the story of Peter? Peter was thrown in prison, and the church was at home, and they were at Mary's house. And you remember what they were doing? They were praying for Peter, and an angel shows up, gets Peter out of prison, and Peter goes to be with the church, and he gets to the house, and he knocks on the door. The servant girl comes to the door. She sees it's Peter, and she doesn't open the door. She runs back and tells everyone else, hey, Peter's outside, and poor Peter's still standing there. I want you to hear what Peter did. Acts 12, verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Peter knocked on the door. Nobody answered. Nobody let him in. And so he just kept knocking. Now, I understand Acts 12 is not a story about prayer. That's not his point on the knocking there. But it is a great illustration of persistence. And that is an aspect of prayer. Turn over to Luke 11. That is an aspect of prayer that Jesus wants you to understand. And the same idea of standing at a door, waiting for someone to come and help you, is presented in a parable on prayer. Luke 11, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Luke 11, verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Notice the person standing at the door, the door is still closed, and he stands at the door, and he's waiting and asking for someone to come and help him. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And then we have a statement that sounds very familiar. Verse 9, So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Jesus here commends persistence in prayer. And says, if you want your prayers answered, keep going back. Don't give up. Keep going back and asking. keep knocking on the gate of heaven until he answers. We can go back to Matthew 7 now. And that same idea of persistence is here in Matthew 7, verse 7. Remember those three verbs we talked about? Ask, seek, and knock. All three of them describe continual, ongoing action. Action that does not cease. Unceasing asking, endless seeking, and persistent knocking. If you just keep going back. If you just keep asking, keep knocking. End verse 7. If you keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. The closed door that you cannot open, God will open it. What you cannot accomplish for yourself, God will accomplish. If you keep knocking, God promises to answer your prayer. And then he sums all of this up. Verse 8, Matthew 7, verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. In verse 7, these three words, ask, seek, and knock, are commands. They're telling you what you must do. Verse 8 doesn't have any commands. It's the purpose statement. It's the reason why he's giving us the command. You should follow these commands, verse 8, for or because everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. That's why you should follow the commands. You should ask, seek, and knock because God answers prayer. But I do want to point out here, he does mention this word here, everyone. What does he mean by everyone? Or shall I say, who does he mean by Everyone. Does this mean that everyone in the world has this open blanket promise you can ask and receive? Well, I don't think so, no. The reason I say that is because this is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a sermon given to the disciples of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 5, this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Them refers back to his disciples. He is speaking to believers. The commands and the promises of the Sermon on the Mount are for believers. Secondly, Matthew 7, verse 11, the Father is pictured as answering prayer for his children. So the implication there is if you want God to answer your prayers, you need to be a child of God. Is everyone a child of God? No. If you want to be a child of God, you have to sit, you have to be saved by Christ. You have to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who reject Christ, those who refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not hear your prayer. He will not answer your prayer if you have not trusted in Christ. There is only one prayer he will hear from you. And that is the prayer of repentance and faith. When you turn to him and you trust in him and in him alone for salvation, when you stop trusting in your works, when you stop trusting in your effort, you stop trusting in your church or your religion, and you turn and you trust in Christ and in Christ alone, then this promise is for you. So everyone here is not referring to all people. It is referring to all believers. But does it refer to all believers at all times? Does this mean I can do whatever I want, ask anything I want, and God will still give me what I want? There are some things that can hinder your prayers being answered. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly, so we're not going to turn to all these passages, but I do want to give these to you. five hindrances to your prayers being answered. First. First hindrance to answered prayer: harboring sin. Harboring sin. I'm not talking about a a believer who struggles with sin and they fall and they get up and they repent and they fall again. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who intentionally holds on to sin. I've got this sinful relationship over here and I like it and I'm going to keep it. Lying works well for me. I get what I want by doing it. I'm going to keep on lying. That's harboring sin. The psalmist in Psalm 66, verses 17 and 18, he said, I called out to him with my mouth and he was exalted with my tongue if I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The psalmist wasn't saying that he was guilty of harboring sin, but the fact that he was not harboring sin was the reason he was so confident the Lord would hear his prayer. If you refuse to repent of sin, if you are harboring known sin in your life, God does not hear your prayer. And I have a New Testament verse for that too. 1 John 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. To intentionally run off into sin, to refuse to confess and forsake your sin, creates an impenetrable barrier to your prayers being answered. You have to turn from your sin. Second hindrance to answered prayer. Mistreating your spouse. Mistreating your spouse. This is found in 1 Peter 3. Peter is discussing the relationship between a husband and a wife. First Peter 3 verse 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, here it is, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Peter is talking directly to husbands, but the principle applies in both directions. If a husband is mistreating his wife, he might as well just bounce his prayers off the ceiling. If a wife is mistreating her husband and not living with her husband in a godly way, go ahead and bounce your prayers off the ceiling. God does not want to hear from you until you get that horizontal relationship right. And you say, well, are you saying that God rewards us and rewards our righteousness with answered prayer? No, it's actually the opposite. This is divine discipline for sin. If you repent and forsake, God will go back to answering prayer. Third hindrance to God answering your prayer. A lack of faith. Believing that God is willing and able to answer your prayer. This is out of James 1, verses 6 and 7. James 1, verse 6. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Have you ever done this? You've been in prayer, and you're going to ask for something, and you're like, man, I don't think he's going to answer this. I just know he's not going to answer, but I'm going to try it anyway. I'm going to throw this up there and see what happens. That's a lack of faith. And the reason you're struggling there is because you're wondering, is this God's will? Is this consistent with what God wants? How can you make sure that your prayer is consistent with God's will? John 5 verse 14, and this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do I know if it's according to his will? I go to his revealed will and I look at what his revealed will says about my situation and what he would desire in my situation, and then I go and pray that. And if I pray and I ask according to his revealed will, God will hear and answer the prayer. 1 John 5, verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Again, do you hear the confidence? I know I have what I've asked. But if I refuse to believe what Scripture says, if I refuse to have faith in His promises, it's a hindrance to my prayer being answered. Fourth hindrance to answered prayer. Praying with wrong motives. Praying with wrong motives. This is out of James 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The easiest application of this is praying for more money. Now, if you need more money and you have a legitimate need, Pray for more money. But if you're praying for more money because you just want to be rich or you want to keep up with the Joneses and have the best looking house and the best looking car on the street, your prayer is indicative of a love of money. It's a wrong desire. It's a hindrance to prayer. Fifth and final hindrance to the answer prayer. Refusing to pray. That one seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? James 4:2, you lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. People fight and quarrel because they have desires, things that they want. And when they don't get it and they can't figure out a way to get it, they get upset. And so they resort to yelling, screaming, cursing, hitting, and ultimately murder. Rather than trusting God to provide for them, rather than going to God in prayer and asking for what it is they desire, they try to get it on their own. And when that fails, they get upset. And James tells them, look, the answer here to getting what you want is not for you to do it through your means. The answer is to go to God in prayer and trust that God answers prayer. That's the solution. We need to start believing the first truth. God promises to answer your prayer. Let's look at the second truth about God answering prayer. God answers prayer because of his nature. Because of his nature. We often think that God won't answer our prayer because... I'm not doing something right. I don't have the right words. I'm not eloquent enough. My prayer isn't long enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not perfect enough. Oh, and I fell into sin yesterday. God doesn't want to hear from me today. I can't pray to him now. The truth is, God doesn't answer your prayer because of you. It's not because he sees something great and wonderful in you that you are deserving of his kindness. God answers prayer because he is, by nature, gracious, gracious grace is God's mercy and kindness towards those who do not deserve it. None of us deserve for God to answer our prayers. We deserve wrath. We deserve for him to abandon us. But he gives us kindness and mercy. And answered prayer is one manifestation of God's gracious nature. And it is this gracious nature that forms the foundation of his promise. God answers prayer because of who he is. Look at verse 9, Matthew 7, verse 9. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? This is axiomatic, it's self-evident. The question assumes a negative answer. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Answer, no one. Nobody treats their children this way. Even as sinners, you would not do this to your child. You would not let one of your children starve When you had the food to give it to them, you provide and you care for them, not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because you love them. It doesn't matter how much your child fails. It doesn't matter how much they sin. It doesn't matter how much they upset you. You still are going to provide for them. When it comes to meeting their needs, the answer is always yes. And if you, if you as a fallen sinner can show that kind of grace and that kind of mercy and compassion to an undeserving sinner. How much more will God, who is by nature perfectly compassionate and infinitely gracious, how much more will he provide and give to you what you ask for? Our performance today, this week, last month, last year, does not determine whether or not God is willing to answer prayer. He answers prayer because of his nature. Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Again, the question assumes a negative answer. No one would do that. No parent would respond to their child's request for food by handing them a snake. And the idea here is not just any snake. This is a living snake. Not just a living snake. The word here is used to describe venomous snakes. The child comes and asks for food. And the parent hands the child a live cobra, which in Jesus' day would have been a death sentence. What father would do that to their child? It's unthinkable that a father or a parent could be so cruel to his own children. You know who would do something like that? Not a parent, but an enemy. Someone who hates you. Someone who wishes to harm you or to hurt you. For God to treat you that way is for God to treat you like an enemy. Believer, you are not an enemy of God. You have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his child. And God does not give harmful things to his children. James 1, verse 17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know, if you look back on your prayer life, I know if I look back on my prayer life as a Christian and even before I was a Christian. I've prayed for things that would have been really harmful. If God would have given me what I wanted, I'd be hurting. The Father in heaven cares for his children. He doesn't give harmful things. He is perfectly wise. He knows exactly what I need. He knows exactly what is beneficial. Which means you can go to him. You can submit your requests with confidence. That even if it's not a good request in the sense of it's not good for you, the Father still will answer your prayer, but he'll do it in a way so you don't get what you shouldn't have. You'll never get anything that is harmful. Why? Because he is by nature a loving, merciful, compassionate God. And he is that perfectly. And Jesus is now going to summarize all of, these, all of this from these two questions in verse 11. Look at verse 11. If you then, being evil, this assumes you are evil. This is not a question like maybe you're evil. No, it assumes that you are evil and you're more evil than you think you are. Verse 11 again. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. You give good gifts to your children despite the fact that you are evil. Despite the fact that you have a sinful nature, despite the fact that you have a heart that's filled with sinful desires, you give good gifts. Gifts aren't earned. When you give your children gifts, do they deserve it all the time? No, it's a gift. They're not compensation for righteousness. They're not rewards for work. It's not a wage. It's a gift. They are given by grace you provide for your children by grace because you love them and you want to meet their needs. And yes, you want to fulfill some of their desires. And if that is true of you, a sinner whose desires are mixed with all sorts of sin, verse 11 again, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? How much more? I want to think about that idea for just a moment. Just ask two questions here. How much more is God able to give good things? Are you able to give good things like God is able? Can you draw from His infinite resources? Do you possess His vast knowledge? Do you love with perfect love? Do you have the power to accomplish all that you desire? How much more is God able to give good things? What request can exhaust his inexhaustible storehouse? What prayer will require provisions that he does not have? What need could overwhelm his ability? What sinner could reach the limit of his limitless grace? What is God unable to do? How much more is God able to give good things than you are? We could also ask it another way. How much more is God willing to give good things? It's one thing to say he's able. It's another thing to believe that he is willing. How much more is God willing to give good things? Are you as willing to give good things as God has given? What are the limits of his kindness? How much kindness is too much for him? How can you exceed the riches of his love? What righteous request will exceed his willingness to bless and do good for you? What blessing is he unwilling to grant to those who have been purchased by Christ? What prayer could require so much that God is unwilling to answer it? God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask. He is more than able and he is more than willing. The question is, Christian, do you pray like that is true? Does your prayer life reflect that belief? As we enter this new year, resolve that in 2024 you're going to start praying like you believe that God answers prayer. Let's go to Him in prayer as we close. Father, we thank You so much. We thank You that You are gracious and compassionate. We thank You that You do care for us as children, that You do provide for us. Despite our sin, despite our failure, despite all the times that we have rebelled against You, all the times that we have turned up our nose at your law and at your word, you are still gracious and compassionate. You still answer prayer. And we do ask that you would help each one of us to look at our own life, look at our own prayer life, and see how we can grow in our prayer life. That you would give us all the conviction that the greatest use of our time, the most effective use of our time, is to seek you in prayer. And that we would live out this simple promise from you that you answer our prayers. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.